I can't really remember whether I've told you this story or not, but it's not a bad story, and so you can politely laugh if it's one you've heard before. I uh, I needed a I actually asked for a stress test a couple of years ago, and uh, just just sort of as a normal routine thing. But that put me over with a, a more of a heart specialist, and so I uh, I received a phone call a year later. And I didn't realize that when you see a guy once, that he's going to plan on seeing you again. So I end up over in the section of the hospital that's the coronary care uh, specialty. And I was sitting there waiting for my appointment, uh, and, and some interesting things happened. One is the doctor that I was to see had somehow disappeared and and uh, and they were filling in with some other people, and that was a little strange to me. And there were people that were were sitting around the waiting. Uh, many of them had some obviously serious uh, heart issues. Uh, one little lady off to the side had an oxygen tank and a mask, so I knew she was needing some help. And then two police officers walked in, and uh, I couldn't help myself. I walked over to one of them and I said to him, are you here for a cardiac arrest? (laughs) Oh, that little old lady with the oxygen mask, she was giggling away and that was a good one, she says. (laughs) The uh, Actually, the guy, as, as, as the two police officers left, the guy says, keep coming up with those. And I thought of one just as the door closed behind him. And that was, it was just an off-the-cuff remark. <laughs> so that's my story with a heart specialist. But it is interesting, having just gone through my annual physical, one of the things that doctors just routinely do is they listen to your heart, right? They often will do a, an EKG because they really want to know what shape your heart is in. And that's really what this message is about. It's about what shape our heart is in. Many of us, I think most of us, are familiar with the the great book of Ephesians, and typically we look at it in terms of two major sections, chapters 1, 2, and 3, doctrine, chapters 4, 5, and 6, application or practice. I want to kind of push those apart, if I can, a little bit. I want to explore in this message the relationship between chapters 1, 2, and 3 to chapters 4, 5, and 6. And I think there is something that comes in between that doctrine and practice that we may need to think about that I believe is there. And I'm keying off of Paul himself. I'm keying off of his choice of words of his choice of content, and of his response based upon the things that he writes in this text. And I believe it's key to us in terms of our understanding of of the passage. But let's just talk for a moment about the author and the recipients, just to remind ourselves a little bit. It's the Apostle Paul, contrary always to some off-breed scholarship that wants to prove otherwise, but Obviously, this is this is an epistle of Paul's. We would call it a prison epistle because he refers to himself in chapter 3 as a prisoner of the Lord. And we see that in other 
epistles as well. Yeah, there's some discussion about which prison. I don't think that makes much difference. But I do find it interesting what a guy who is doing time, so to speak, chooses to talk about in a letter. It would have been a great time for a book titled, Nobody Knows the Trouble I've Seen. But that's not what this is about, as you well know. So it's the Apostle Paul, a prisoner who writes to the recipients who are called the Ephesians. Now, there are a couple of ancient manuscripts that leave out the word Ephesians. But I think even in in most all the translations, you'll notice that it says to the saints in Ephesus in the introduction. And most everybody would agree that even if it was a circular letter and it was somehow intended to be passed around, as some epistles certainly were, Ephesus would have been on the list. And so we can certainly say this is a book written to the Ephesians. And lest we miss the point, it is a book written to us, is it not? There's nothing here that you cannot say that was for me, because it it really is. I want to remind ourselves about this church at Ephesus. Late in Paul's second missionary journey, he ends up in Ephesus speaks in the synagogue, is invited to stay longer, and chooses not to. And he says if the Lord leads, he'll be back. And uh, he goes to Caesarea and then begins his uh, third missionary journey. In his absence, you remember in Acts chapter 18, we're told that Apollos, a man who was mighty in the Scriptures, Apollos was there at Ephesus, and was teaching and ministering there. In chapter 19, Paul returns to Ephesus, and uh, he spends three months teaching in the synagogue. As always, when Paul goes somewhere, things start to happen. And so he ends up teaching in the school of Tyrannus for two years. So all in all, Paul is at Ephesus somewhere in the neighborhood of three years. That's a lot of Pauline ministry. You got to say, these people didn't get the short end of the stick when it came to Paul and his, and his teaching. You remember that on that visit, uh, that second visit, there were great things. God worked great miracles through Paul, we see in chapter 19, verses 11 and following. And you remember the story about the sons of Sceva who were going around and they were trying to cast out demons and it was sort of claiming the higher power stuff. And they said, you know, we cast out demons in the name of the God or the Jesus that Paul preaches. And they said, well, we know Paul and we know Jesus. We don't know you. And, and so the demons beat these fellows up pretty badly. And as a result, the, the magic books that were still seemingly on the, on the library shelves of believers were burned. A huge number of books. And it was a great change that took place because of the evident power of the Lord Jesus Christ who is at work uh, there. Well, there was a great uh, uproar, as you know. Paul speaks uh, in one place in, in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says he fought the wild beasts in Ephesus. And maybe that was that would-be riot that took place. And you remember the people were settled down, but uh, Paul... Uh, left. 
It wasn't his last contact because in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is in Miletus, he calls for the Ephesian elders and he tells them that he is going to be uh, off to Jerusalem. He knows that will lead to imprisonment. He will see them no more. And he gives those Ephesian elders last words of exhortation. And then there is a, a, a very uh, sorrowful, sad, tearful uh, parting of ways. But that's not the end of Paul's contact with the Ephesian church. Interestingly, in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul speaks about the matter of this mystery. And he says, as I've written to you briefly earlier, I'm not sure what that was, but obviously there's been some pre-Ephesian revelation that has been sent to them. But then he writes this epistle uh, to this church and perhaps to others. He sends Timothy to Ephesus, you remember, and he tells them that he needs to stay on there because he needs to deal with some error that's coming into play and he's to deal with that and, and put down, as it were, the teaching of error. My take on First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and the qualifications for elders, as well as First Timothy 5, which talks about the uh, discipline of an elder, is that this was a church not like the churches in Titus. This was not a church that needed new, fresh elders because they didn't have any. They'd had elders for a long time. This was a church that needed a few less elders, it seems to me, because of the false teaching that had crept in. But there was that letter to the Ephesians, Paul's writing to Timothy. He sends Tychicus, he says, to Ephesus in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And then there's that last word of Revelation in Revelation, Revelation chapter 2, where the church at Ephesus is addressed and it is commended for its doctrinal um, devotion, but it is rebuked for its lack of love. And I think that it's probably in part due to the church's neglect of the teaching of Ephesians that we see the church in the condition that it is uh, when we find it in Revelation. One of the best taught churches ever by the Apostle Paul, and yet it ends up there. So how does the book go? Yeah, I'm not going to teach that. You know I'm not going to teach it verse by verse, right? Dr. Johnson used to say he goes down deeper and stays down longer than anybody I know. Well, I'm not going down deep and I'm not staying that long. I'm going to give you the overview of those first three chapters and try to underscore the tone of those chapters and how they relate to the application chapters of verses 4 through 6. So after his greeting, you have this, this outpouring of the summary, as it were, of salvation from God's purpose to save in eternity past, from his choice of his elect, to his predestination to sonship of those that he has chosen, all the way to the certainty of their hope and the sealing of these saints through the Spirit. And, and so what you see is salvation outlined from eternity past to eternity future, and it is certain and it is secure and it is sealed. Notice it engages all three members of the Trinity, 
Father, Son, and Spirit. It emphasizes the generosity and the magnitude of this, of this gift of salvation. And it emphasizes strongly the fact that this is done to the praise of His glory. Well, I might as well say it right here. I'll probably say it again. But you know, if we read these verses rightly, and I think they are verses that a new Christian ought to get to very quickly, one of the first things we ought to see is, it isn't all about me. It isn't. It's about Him. And it's about His purpose for the church, not only on earth, but with respect to the celestial powers. It isn't primarily about me. And if I think that I'm coming to this text to build my self-esteem, folks, I'm not. I'm coming to this text because it exalts God. And where my standing is relates to Him, not not to me per se. Anyway, that's the, the, the summary. And then you know that Paul turns very quickly to his prayer... Uh, it, later on in, in chapter 1. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you. Now, I have to remind you, this is Paul the Jew, who is giving thanks for the salvation of Gentiles. Now, there were those rare breed of folks like Barnabas who when Barnabas remember when the church in Jerusalem heard about this sort of uh, accidental uh, birthing of the church at Antioch some people didn't get the message the memo you don't give the gospel to Gentiles and and so the Gentiles came to faith and there's this church in the Jerusalem church says well we got to do something let's send old Barnabas Barnabas goes and it says he rejoiced at their salvation. So does Paul. Hey, that is not typical of even his believing peers. Remember when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius and, and, and Cornelius and, and company get saved? Peter gets called on the carpet in chapter 11. And the question is basically this. What do you think you're doing taking the gospel to Gentiles? This is huge. Paul praises God for the salvation of these of these Gentile believers. And then notice the petition. He petitions God that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened so that we may know, you may know what the hope of your calling is, the riches of the glory of his inheritance and the surpassing greatness of his power. So he's praying that of all these things that he has described... They will begin to get it, to grasp the magnitude and the wonder of what has taken place and what is yet to take place because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As I've pointed out before, each chapter ends by focusing our attention on the church because that is who he is addressing. And so it does here. But he says, the greatness of the power that is accessible and at work in the believer is to be measured by the power of God in the gospel as it worked in Christ. So do you want to know how great that power is? Look at Christ. 
He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He's victor over all. He's head over the church. Well, Paul prays that the believers will begin to grasp what that's about. So there's the big picture. Now, when you move to chapter 2, you move to sort of the experiential realm where believers found themselves. I must confess that as I have read verses 1 through 10 in the past, I always read that you as singular. (laughs) In other words, me. It's true. It's true in the singular. But that's not what Paul is saying. The you is plural. And what he does in a very interesting way is he talks about what the Gentile believers were like. They were dead in their sins. They were bound, as it were, by Satan as his servants. They were enemies of God. But, that's the you. But he also says, verse 3, Among them, we too all formerly lived. See what Paul is saying is, we Jews, (laughs) we're not any better. We're just like you. We were sinners separated from God. And so what he does, in a sense, is join them in their lostness. No real difference. And now he's going to join them in their, in the grace that God has granted through salvation. So God graciously reaches out, saves lost sinners, reconciles them to himself, and destines them toward good works. That's a quick and and easy version of verses 1 through 10. Now what he does is move from this reconciliation in general terms of two parties, Jews and Gentiles, who are reconciled to God through faith in the Lord Jesus. And now he talks about the greater work of reconciliation. That is the reconciliation of the two most opposed groups on the face of the earth, the McCoys and the Hatfields. Here they are, and he says, God has brought you together. The blood of Jesus Christ has torn down the separating wall, and now these two entities, these two opposing people, opposed to each other, as they were opposed to God, these two have now been brought together, reconciled, and they are made into one new man, the church. Reconciliation between enemies of God and God and enemies of each other through Christ. That's the work of the gospel that's described in chapter 2. Now, when we come to chapter 3, we see Paul going back to that which he has hinted at In chapter 1, where he talks about, uh, in verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ. That's sort of given to us in a vague, general way. It's described for us now, more in particular, in chapter 2. And now he sets this thing in context, and he says, in effect, this is my calling. This is what God has set me apart to do. Am I a prisoner? You bet. And he's really a prisoner for fulfilling his calling, for taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But he says... This revelation 
that was purposed in eternity past, that's now being worked out in the church, is a plan that God has had for all time. And that mystery has now been revealed through the work of Christ and the declaration of the apostles. And Paul says, that's my job. My job is telling folks of the mystery of what God has done as we've seen it worked out in chapter 2. And the purpose of that is so that through the church, the grace and the wisdom of God can be declared to the celestial powers, to the glory of God. I'm reminded just quickly of the story that Johnny Erickson Tata tells about her time in uh, the hospital when she had become paralyzed. She was uh, in her room on Sunday nights watching uh, the Carol Burnett show, and her roommate uh, with her mother was usually reading scripture and praying. And uh, Johnny said in effect to herself, what difference does it make? What difference does it make what I do? I'm here in this hotel, uh, this hospital room. Nobody knows or cares. What difference does it make? Basically, it's the truth of this text and others, which speak about the angelic interest. Remember, uh, Peter says things into which the angels appear to look. And, and Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, because the angels are watching, the celestial powers are watching us. They're watching the church and they're learning. And all of that, God says... Is for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. And so Paul says to him, with that glorious mission, don't you feel bad for me? Don't you feel troubled at my persecution? Remember when Paul says, the eternal weight of glory outweighs this light momentary affliction? This great privilege makes Paul delighted to suffer for the gospel and the saints ought to feel the same way. That leads him to his second prayer in uh, Ephesians 1 through 3, and that is in verse 14 and following. And based upon that purpose, that is, that these things are for the glory of God and the glory of the church, then he says, I bow my knees and I ask that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. In other words, he's praying that you will get it. Well, that suggests the magnitude of the revelation that's there for the gospel. Well, I just, I was trying to decide whether to include this or not. This is my opinion about heaven. I think that heaven is not going to be one big core dump. Um, I know that doesn't, I don't even understand all that means. But in other words, one big offload of information when you hit the gates so that from that point on, you now have full, unlimited knowledge and understanding. I believe that the gospel is so profound and God's wisdom and grace is so measureless that what's going to happen is all through eternity, we're going to get daily, daily revelations, as it were. One more disclosure of how wonderful it is. 
Boy, I could talk about politics right now and how one more disclosure keeps getting worse and worse. But, but really, in heaven, it's the opposite. Every new revelation is further grounds for praise. And that's going to happen for eternity. Because that's how great our God is. And that's what Paul is praying for. All right, I have to confess. I took my large notes, tossed them away, and went to this from here on out. So the question is, what's the relationship between chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6? And I think you have to say this, first of all. The things that are commanded, the imperatives of 4 through 6, are rooted in the instruction we've received in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Let me give you an example. The first thing we encounter in chapter 4, starting with those verses that, that I read to you this morning, the first thing we encounter is the call for unity. That call for unity is based upon God's eternal purpose that he has just described, where he has reconciled two parties together and made one new man of them, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, and chapter 3, the mystery of what God was all about from eternity past, not some new change of plans, but the eternal plan. And so what he says is, you are one new man. Guess what? That means you must preserve that unity. (laughs) I love what God does next. He says, oh, and by the way, just in case you're not predisposed to do that, I've created the church in such a way that you have to. I've created various spiritual gifts And I've distributed those amongst the body so that the body is dependent. And as it grows, it must grow corporately. And it grows as each individual member plays its part. We can't do without parts of the body. And that's what he's playing out in this whole thing about unity. Now, when I look at chapter... Four and following, I come to this conclusion. In fact, I was thinking about doing my introduction this way. Paul has a manuscript of Ephesians and he goes to a publisher and he said, I'd like to publish this book. You know what they'd do? They'd kick him out the door. They'd say, well, number one, Paul, people really like stories now. And you you got a great story, this prison thing. You could really work that. Why don't you do that story? Or uh, people are interested in how to do things. Why don't you talk about doctrine? You've started with doctrine. You can't start a book like that. That's dull and boring. You've got you to have something exciting. But you see, I think that you have, to, you have to see that throughout the Bible, there are not nearly as many how-tos as why-tos. The Bible is not a how-to book. Now, I know YouTube. I go out there when I'm working on a car. It saved me a lot of time to find a little how-to video about fixing something. Almost all the books on the Christian bookshelves in the Christian bookstores, or a great number of them, are how-to books. How to have a big, successful church. 
how to how to do your your family uh, to raise your family in such and such a way how to be successful as a christian and it's almost always written by a man who is perceived to be successful and the essence of it is if you do what he does you'll get what he got he's the how to man just follow him follow his example do what he says the bible doesn't do that and i'll tell you why if you really have the why to down, or let's call it the want to down, you won't need a how to. Because you'll figure it out. I saw this fascinating TED video where they were talking about traditional classroom education. They took, in effect, an iPad or its equivalent. They stuck it in a little alcove in, in a, in a, in a hut in a, in a remote village. And they just turned it on. And kids came along and they'd say, what's that? I'd say, I don't know. How do you make it work? I don't know. Every time they asked the question, they just got an I don't know. Do you know by the end of the day, those kids had not only figured out how to work that iPad, they had figured out and were teaching others how to work it. Do you know why? Because their want to overcame their how to lack. And I think that's what we need to see in Scripture. Everybody shouldn't, doesn't need to do it exactly the same way. Our problem is we don't want to, not we don't know how to. And that's what I see in Ephesians. A lot of simple statements, if you'll pardon me for saying so, and I don't mean to be too snotty, without any 12 steps. Because there may be nine or eight or seven or whatever. But it's following out what God has created a desire for in our heart. And when we have that desire, I am I'm confident with his power and his provisions, we'll find out the how-tos. But we'll find out in a way that makes us dependent upon him. So what do you, where do you get the want to? I think the thing that's missing in most of our perceptions of Ephesians is worship. The want to comes from worship. Worship realigns and reorients our heart. Jeanette and I have a GPS that we haven't used for a good long time, and we were thinking about uh, giving that to somebody else, and I turned it on to see if it worked. I can't explain it. But somehow this thing thought that I was in Illinois somewhere. And so every time, every time I tried to find some directions or whatever, it, it started me at the wrong place. I think theology and worship is aligning our hearts and saying, here's home. This is home. This is where you are. This is who you are, and now everything flows out of that. And I'll tell you, that's where idolatry takes us south. I've always, when, when in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, flee idolatry, and you're thinking, what? Idolatry is the, is the perversion of our heart, our want to. Our heart isn't just a physical organ, and isn't just our emotions. It's that inner motivational system that that moves us to a certain direction and with certain actions. That's what the heart is. 
And you see that over and over again, by the way, in the scriptures. Uh, Revelation 2 and 3, and also in the in Jesus telling the parables, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know what that's saying? He whose heart is in tune and inclined. Jesus says in John 7, if you desire to do my Father's will, you'll know that what I'm saying is right, and you'll understand it. It's our heart that predisposes us toward obedience to God and toward worship. And worship, then, is realigned, is realigning as we take theology of chapter 1 and we convert that into praise. And nobody does that better than Paul. Now, you might be inclined to say, well, yeah, I can sort of see that in those two prayers. I mean, Paul keeps just dropping on his <laughs> He's in the middle of something, he's down on his knees. Whoa, what is this? Praising God and, and making petition. But those first words in chapter th- uh, 1, verse 3, Blessed be. Well, I sort of got interested in those. And what I discovered is that in the Old Testament, those same Greek words, I know the Old Testament was in Hebrew, in the Septuagint, Greek version of the Old Testament, those words were used for the introduction of worship. All of a sudden, I say to myself, chapters 1, 2, and 3 aren't just leading us to worship. They are worship. Theology is worship because we must discern who is the God that we serve and we we praise Him and we worship Him for who He is and what He has done. So the biblical history spells out what He's done, not to mention our own experience, and theology says this is what He's like so that when we suffer... The psalmist goes back to his theology and he says, how do I interpret this? Psalm 73. He says, look, Lord, you promised to do good. How come this immoral jerk is driving the fancy car and living the good life? And here I am, pious as I am, and I'm suffering. You know what? It's not until he goes to worship, he says, to the sanctuary of the Lord. All of a sudden, he starts seeing things differently. Whoa! It looks differently when you you look at time versus eternity. He says, this guy is enjoying life for a time. I got it for eternity. And this guy, right now, he's doing it without you. I have you! I've got it better now and then. So he says, man, I was a beast. And then he says, the nearness of God is my good. You see what I'm saying? Worship gets us aimed in the right direction. Doctrine is the fuel and the guidelines for that. And so when we look at Ephesians, I see Paul getting us in the mood and the motion of worship. Oh, by the way, let's go to a couple other texts. Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Romans 1 says that the reason why the heathen deserve God's eternal wrath is because they knew something about God and they rejected that revelation and they refused to worship Him on the basis of what they saw, right? 
So God holds men accountable for their response to what they have learned about him. If that is true, my friend, for what a heathen sees by looking at nature, what do we do with what we've learned in 1, 2, and 3? God holds us responsible, and the right response is worship. So, when you go to the book of uh, Romans, and you see Paul, and he comes to chapter 11 after laying out this whole plan, which you know has to do with Jews and Gentiles too, what does he do in those last verses of chapter 11? He exalts God. And then he says in chapter 12, I beseech you on the basis of all of this, you might say Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, on the basis of all of this, present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable act of worship. So our obedience is based upon revelation and the truth, and it is motivated by the worship that that should indeed produce in our lives. I've been thinking about Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They were constantly devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. You know what's always bothered me about that verse? The absence of the word worship. I thought, wait, wait, wait a minute. Here are these people, they're all gathered together. Why doesn't it say they gathered together to worship? Here's my, uh, my opinion based upon my study in Ephesians. Those are the ingredients of worship. Think about it. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, communion, as it were, uh, of having things in common, breaking of bread, and prayer. Isn't that everything? Isn't that what worship is about? Now, the interesting thing about that is when we started community, we had come out of a tradition where teaching, apostles' doctrine, was on Sunday morning and worship was on Sunday night. The only problem was about 25% of those who came for doctrine came for worship. So one of the first things we did, and one of the things we stubbornly held to, is on Sunday morning, we're not going to separate doctrine from worship because they belong together. That's why we have two portions of our meeting. We have instruction and we have worship because worship ought to be our response to the truths that God has taught. We're not going to separate those. I'll tell you this. I've come to the conclusion that our biggest problem, just like the problem at Ephesus, is a deficit in worship. I think that's the big one. And I think it's the one that needs to be foremost in our minds. It's critical for a lot of reasons, but let me give you a couple of examples. Evangelism. Evangelism is not a duty that we with teeth gritted, carry out. Evangelism is worship gone viral. Look at Acts. Look at Acts. Do you see anybody saying, oh my goodness, we've got the Great Commission. Let's have a meeting. And let's talk about how we're going to strategize. No. People worshipped. And as they were scattered by persecution, they just kept worshipping. You talk about that which matters to you. 
Evangelism is simply public worship. And if they see that that's the joy and delight of our lives, that's a whole lot better than thinking it's just a duty that we have to perform. Well, besides evangelism, we've talked about some other things like discipleship. Isn't it interesting that discipleship flows out of worship too? See, Paul has started this whole thing with blessed be, so everything in one through three, not to mention the rest of it, is all about worship. And then he he, he basically says in, in, in his prayer in chapter one, look, my prayer is not only a prayer of thanksgiving because you've come to faith, That's kind of moving you toward evangelism. But now that you've come to faith, my prayer is that you'll grasp the great truths of the gospel and that you'll understand the power of God. And so he prays that they would grow, does he not? Well, anybody who has that as his passion is going to find ways to help people do that. So I'm saying it's worship that drives evangelism. It's worship that drives discipleship. And if we're deficit in our worship, then I think we'll be deficit in all those critical things. A couple of last words. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. They devoted themselves to worship. That tells me they weren't casual. They weren't casual about it. So let me part, if I can, with two, two simple suggestions as to what devotion may include. One, preparation. Preparation. If we don't come prepared to worship, my friend, we're not devoted to it. We're not devoted to it. We need to do a better job as elders of helping people do that preparation but we're working at it already sometimes that labor is not rewarded by follow through the second thing I would say is come on time when I was in India I attended a graduation ceremony for a forestry school and I learned something kind of funny the degree of your importance was measured by how late you came to something. It's true. Some speakers never showed up. And the inference was, I'm too important to show up. And so the degree to which you were late says it's the degree to which you esteem yourself. What are we saying when we show up late? What are we saying? It seems to me that if we're devoting ourselves to worship... We've got to think about who's important and what does that have to say about our, our clocks. I speak to myself, by the way, in that, not just everybody else. These are things, I think, that are critical, my friend. If you're here this morning and perhaps you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, then the book of Ephesians has that great news. You who are enslaved to your sin can be set free through the shed blood of Jesus. We were, we remember that every single week. And rightly so. That is the gospel. And by the way, did you notice Ephesians is gospel-centered? 
critical to do that. Trust in Jesus. And for those of us who have, remember. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace that's been given to us in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. May we become worshipers of you, for that is what you have said is your desire. In Jesus' name.